Well, good morning, everybody. In 1850, uh, a French business and economics writer made the following observations. Between Paris and Brussels, obstacles of many kinds exist. First of all, there is distance, which entails loss of time. And we must either submit to this ourselves or pay another to submit to it. Then come rivers, marshes, accidents, bad roads, which are so many difficulties to be surmounted. We succeed in building bridges and forming roads and making them smoother by pavements, iron rails, etc. But all this is costly, and the commodity must, must be made to bear the cost. Then there are robbers who infest the roads, and a body of police must be kept up. Now, among these obstacles, there is one which we have ourselves set up, and at no little cost, too, between Brussels and Paris. There are men who lie in ambush along the frontier, armed to the teeth, and whose business it is to throw difficulties in the way of transporting merchandise from one country to the other. They are called customs house officers. And they act in precisely the same way as ruts and bad roads. These are the words of Frederick Bastiat uh, from 1850. And they've resonated with me for a long time. You know, how odd is it that we spend tens of billions of dollars uh, to build larger container ships. Uh, we widen canals connecting the world's oceans to enable passage of those larger ships. We dredge harbors and ports to accommodate their docking. We build rail and road uh, right up to the ports so that cranes can, in one pivot, uh, move from the ship's deck to the 18-wheelers and to the freight rails, uh, all these uh, products, which is all an obeisance uh, of the commercial fact of life that time is money only in the end to gum up the works with man-made red tape that negates all of those great strides of progress. Now, customs house brokers, tariffs, other border restraints are not quite as prominent in today's transatlantic relationship as they were in Bastiat's 19th century Europe or as they are in other parts of the world today. But we are still dealing with other significant man-made barriers to trade across the Atlantic. Regulations, uh, product standards, health and safety standards, regulatory approval processes, local content requirements, policies that amount to subsidies for national champions. These are not tariffs, uh, but they are man-made obstacles, and they inhibit growth and human freedom. As human beings uh, who physiologically need to interact and psychologically need to transact and who gravitate toward exchange to improve our lots, we try our damnedest to break through these barriers distance barriers, communication barriers, natural obstacles, political obstacles. But as human beings in our most dangerous, most intrusive manifestations, as politicians, as regulators, as busybodies, as know-it-alls, we erect legal, regulatory, and administrative barriers to secure our own turf. These are the real obstacles to trade liberalization. Humans in this worst manifestation they will try to pass, off, pass themselves off as heroes. Look, look what we've proposed to, to ail all that, that, that troubles us, free trade. But the fact is that they're the ones who've erected uh, these barriers to trade in the first place. And in the end, they are likely to be the ones standing between a marginal outcome and a more ambitious, truly liberalizing one. Now, before I get all worked up, red in the face, which I suppose is unbecoming of a moderator, uh, I should welcome you to the Cato Institute and introduce myself. Welcome to Cato. Uh, my name is Dan Eikenson. I am director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. 
I will be your reserved, unopinionated moderator for today's event, uh, which is titled US-EU Free Trade Agreement, Recipe for Growth or Road to Nowhere. Now, these negotiations raise a series of very important questions, the answers for which I think are kind of unclear at this point. And that's why we've assembled this top-shelf panel of experts to help us take account of the various considerations that will shape the texture and steer the direction of the negotiations. Before I introduce them, though, I want to offer uh, a small bit of background. I assume most, if not all of you, uh, are aware of the developments uh, and the stakes. The, the final report uh, of the high-level US, the US-EU high-level working group setting out the broadly termed objectives of a transatlantic trade investment agreement was published on February 11th and then released on February 13th. That report and a brief analysis of that report by Simon Lester uh, was available on the table in the lobby. I hope you were able to get copies of both. Uh, Simon's remarks today uh, will we'll key off that report and he will offer support and encouragement for the process uh, as well as a dose of skepticism uh, about the prospects. Uh, a US-EU trade agreement would be huge in the sense that bilateral trade in goods and services between the two amounted to about a trillion dollars in 2012. The investment relationship, as you know, is even larger. Uh, given that volume of trade investment, uh, there is great potential for big economic gains, even if liberalization isn't comprehensive. Better that it be comprehensive, though. Uh, given that US and EU traders account for between one-third to 40% of all global trade flows, a successful bilateral deal could be a catalyst for broader liberalization at the multilateral level, which would be an extremely important uh, potential indirect benefit of a transatlantic deal. Frederick Erickson will speak to both of these, uh, the, the direct and indirect benefits, in his talk this morning. With US tariffs averaging around 2%, EU tariffs slightly under 4%, much of the potential harvest will come from services liberalization uh, and some form of regulatory coherence, convergence, harmonization, mutual recognition that reduces production costs associated with the need to adhere to multiple sets of standards. Uh, with respect to health and food safety, think hormones and GMOs, the differences may be intractable. Uh, although I suspect the Europeans, in light of the past week's revelations, may be a bit more willing to concede ground on meat inspection. Uh, negotiations concerning standards are likely to be very difficult and perhaps even more difficult for observers to understand. Charles Levy will focus his remarks uh, this morning on standards and offer some strategies and tactics that might, uh, might serve negotiators and ultimately consumers well. And finally, these negotiations will not be concluded in a vacuum or conducted in a vacuum. Uh, they will influence trade policy developments around the world and they could perhaps benefit from recent experiences in other trade negotiations. Among the several questions that David Talbot uh, will address in his remarks uh, is whether uh, the US and EU negotiators can learn anything from the almost four years of negotiations between Canada and the European Union. So there are many dimensions to these negotiations, including some that are unlikely to be discussed in much depth today. But I hope and expect that our panel will do, uh, do an excellent job delving into some of the very important dimensions that they've chosen to speak about today. So I'm going to introduce each of our speakers now, and they, they will each speak uh, in sequence without intervening questions and answers. Uh, and they'll each speak for about 10 to 12 minutes. After the last speaker, I will come back to the podium and take questions from you all for the panel. Okay, our first speaker is going to be Frederick Erickson. Uh, Frederick is a, a Swedish economist and writer. 
Uh, he is director of uh, the European Center for International Policy, uh, International Political Economy, ESIP, a world uh, economy think tank based in Brussels, which he co-founded in 2006, together with uh, Razin Sally. Uh, since then, uh, Frederick has led the development of ESIP to become one of Brussels' leading research-based institutions. One of the leading world economy think tanks in the world, ESIP has been awarded with several prizes. And in 2010, the Financial Times uh, ranked Ericsson as one of Brussels' most 30 influential people. Uh, Frederick has authored many books uh, on international economics, economic policy, and regulatory affairs. He's advised several governments in Europe and the rest of the world. He's a frequent speaker at conferences. Uh, prior to starting ESIP, uh, Frederick was an advisor to the British government, chief economist for Timbro, which is a Swedish think tank. He's done many, many other things. M most of you, I'm sure, know Frederick for many years. He's written and advocated extensively for strengthening the transatlantic relationship. Uh, among the materials on the table uh, in the lobby, I didn't see any copies left when I walked in. I hope you got, got copies, though, uh, is... Uh, this paper uh, that Frederick produced, Transatlantic Free Trade, and Agenda for Jobs, Growth, and Global Trade Leadership, as well as a joint production from ESIP and the German Marshall Fund, uh, a new era for transatlantic trade leadership. I hope you've seen that. Uh, our second speaker will be Simon Lester. Simon is a trade policy analyst here with the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, his research focuses on WTO disputes, uh, regional trade agreements, disguised protectionism, uh, and, and the history of international trade law. Before joining Cato, uh, Simon worked for a trade law practice here in Washington. Uh, he was also a legal affairs officer at the appellate body secretariat at the WTO. Uh, in 2001, he founded uh, the International Trade Law website, which many of you have visited, are probably frequent visitors, uh, worldtradelaw.net. Uh, he's written a number of law journal articles, uh, which have appeared in publications like the Stanford Journal of International Law, the George Washington International Law Review, the Journal of World Trade. Uh, in addition, he's taught courses on international trade uh, at American University, at the College of Law there, at the University of Michigan's Law School. Uh, Simon has a JD from the Harvard Law School. Uh, after Simon will be Charles Levy, who is a partner in the international firm of Cassidy, Levy & Kent, where he focuses on legal and policy issues, covering a broad range of international trade, investment, finance, economic sanctions, and export control matters. Um, Mr. Levy is experienced in devising and implementing strategies for for using trade laws, uh, international litigation, and international negotiations to achieve business objectives and resolving disputes between companies and governments. Uh, in the area of international negotiations, he has worked on every major US bilateral, regional, and multilateral negotiation since the GATS Tokyo round. Uh, and in the, in the area of US international trade and investment laws, he has worked on every major US trade, uh, trade act since the Trade Act of 1974. Uh, Mr. Levy also uh, had a hand in the producing this, this, this paper. He was uh, involved uh, with the, the GMF ESIP project. He has a lot to say, and he's going to focus on standards. Um, the, the final speaker is going to be uh, David Talbot, who is director of international government affairs at Eli Lilly and Company. He's based here in DC. Uh, in, in his current role, he supports Eli Lilly's uh, operations in Europe and Canada. Most recently, uh, he supported Lilly's operation in Latin America, Middle East, Africa, Turkey, and Russia. He's all, he also oversees Lilly's corporate affairs capabilities uh, training program for international affiliates. Uh, he formerly served as Associate Vice President International at the uh, Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers uh, of America, Pharma. Uh, the trade association which represents innovative pharmaceutical industry. Uh, his responsibilities there uh, include development of pharmaceutical industry policy and advocacy related to market access barriers, government price controls, and cost containment in overseas markets. 
David uh, has a degree from the University of Ottawa in political science. He's a native of Port Perry, Ontario, and he currently resides here in Washington. I'm now going to turn the podium over to welcome our first speaker, uh, Frederick Erickson. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you, Dan, for um, inviting me here and also for the kind, kind introduction um, um, you, you just gave. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to, uh, to hear a conference that starts with a long quote from Frederic Bastiat. Uh, before I went over here, I was at a conference at one of the ministries in Paris, the land of Frederic Bastiat, where the conference was kicked off by a long quote by Karl Marx. Um, and, you know, you had to pinch yourself in the arm to try to, you know, figure out um, um, to what extent you can actually start a serious conversation about policy from, 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 from that particular thinker. I happen to be, um, well, Karl Marx is not one of my favorites, but I think he has some interesting things to say. But um, that conference uh, was entirely slanted towards the more uninteresting parts of Karl Marx. Anyway. It's, 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 it's a good kickoff for a conference like this to, to start with, with, with Bastiat. What I'm going to do uh, today is to give you, you know, a couple of overall broad general comments on uh, uh, the, the idea of an EU-US free trade agreement. And I'm going to use that term, free trade agreement, because I think the acronym that was invented for it is just almost impossible to express. And when you do express it, it sounds like something completely different. Um, um, it's something, as Dan said, I've been, I've been writing quite a lot on these issues over the course of the past five, six years, um, um, actually even longer. Um, and it's something I've been advocating myself. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think this is going to be a good idea. But why I'm doing that, I'm, 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 I'm conscious not you know, to come across as uh, an, uh, perhaps an ideological believer in a particular format of trade organization. I mean, my, my viewpoint is that I favor uh, reforms to free up trade and global commerce, and the actual format for that is, is of less importance. Um, but my point now is that at this, where we find ourselves in global trade and commercial policy right now, I don't see many other good and, uh, and, and positive options for trying to revive and spur uh, global trade reforms than uh, an initiative by the EU and the United States to radically deepen its policy cooperation on these issues. But one of the problems you find when you talk about it is that different people have very different perceptions about what an EU-US trade agreement will look like, what it's going to represent. Um, when I speak to a lot of people here in the United States, I do hear a lot of criticism against this idea, and in particular from people in business and people with some experience of trying to negotiate similar type of agreements with Europe before. And to some extent, I, I can understand those particular, uh, those particular problems of, of, 
warming up to the idea when you listen to some of the comments that, that you can hear. This is a quote from uh, Martin Schulz, who is the president of the European Parliament. Uh, and I picked this from one of the uh, news um, services in Brussels. And it, what, it's, 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 it's a paragraph that says uh, that the German politician said he's in favor of the free trade deal with the US because, quote, Democracies have to cooperate on an economic level, putting the European social model at the core, labor unions, social rights, and then he went on with um, a couple of other things that may not come across as particularly attractive for uh, many people in the United States, let alone many people in, in, in Europe um, uh, who have a great problems of understanding what exactly is the European social model right now um, um, in countries like Greece, um, Italy, or Spain, Portugal, etc. Uh, but as you can see from this quote, I mean, they, there are people that have a perception about that an EU-US trade agreement is going to be something else than uh, an agreement to free up commerce and to try to liberalize markets in order to increase competition. Um, another, uh, another example of how uh, these types of, of, of left-leaning perceptions can give rise to, um, um, to you know, slightly uh, negative, sometimes perhaps overly passionate comments from a lot of people. This I picked up from a newsletter by, uh, it's a private newsletter, so I'm not going to quote who it is from, but someone who is, who is uh, you know, quite knowledgeable about, knowledgeable about trade issues. And he said, in the catalog of bad ideas, of which there have been many recently, surely that of a European Union, United States free trade agreement to serve as a gold medal for sheer imbecility both Washington and Brussels have been totally adrift in their respective policy agendas on virtually every issue with trade standing out egregiously. The EU and the US are the sick men of the 21st century global economy. The idea that these two trade policy cripples could construct anything solid is absurd. Um, so with that as, as, as a background, why do I think that it is a good idea for the EU and the US to start negotiations between each other? I have four reasons. The first one is that there are solid economic gains to be made from um, a bilateral agreement between the two. My second argument is that this is one of few agreements that actually can help to discipline the United States and the European Union and various types of egregious trade policies that, or regulatory policies that they have employed in the past years, in the past decade. Thirdly, there's an opportunity here for another type of trade leadership in a post-WTO trade policy world. And fourthly, it's an opportunity to spur liberalization and free markets elsewhere. And this is what I want to talk a little bit more here in my introduction. If we look at the, uh, the economic gains and as they have been measured by, by, by different sort of, of scholars and institutes, you can take you know, more plain vanilla type of modeling exercises and look what they suggest. And we're probably going to come up with um, a result saying that the GDP gains for both the United States and Europe will, come in, will be in the region of 0.5 to 1% of GDP from a fairly standard type of a trade agreement with elimination of tariffs, um, a few new market access liberalization for services, plus uh, reductions of, on, on, on regulatory divergence in, in a couple of sectors. 
But this is a very, you know, plain vanilla type of modeling, which I, I really don't believe in. I think the gains can actually be uh, a bit higher than, than what they suggest, uh, especially when you try to factor in other type of dynamic gains that can derive when you take very, very, two very big economies and, and open up trade between them. The competition effect from that sort of trade agreement tends to be quite strong. I mean, if you go back and look, for instance, at the economic gains derived by single market reforms in Europe, by NAFTA here, or by the EU Canada, sorry, by the US-Canada free trade agreement, you will find that the gains tend to be uh, significantly higher than was what was suggested initially by, by some of the modeling work that were done. Um, anyway, that's, that's a side point. I mean, there are, there are substantial gains that can be made, and those gains will, of course, be higher if there will be serious effort to reduce uh, non-tariff barriers and regulatory divergence. If we look at estimates on, on the um, restrictiveness, this is an index of, of non-tariff measure restrictiveness in the United States and Europe, we'll find that restriction, restrictions and restrictiveness remain fairly high in both economies. They are lower than in most other world economies, um, but they tend to be fairly high in, in selected sectors. And another result that you can find from this sort of exercise is that uh, the restrictiveness in the United States tend to be slightly higher than it is in Europe. There will be differences between different sectors, of course, but, but on, 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 on a simple average, the general perspective here is that, that the U.S. maintain a couple of, of non-tariff measures that, that uh, lead to a higher, higher average than, than in, in Europe. And if you're going to go for different, different reductions of these uh, non-tariff measures, you'll find that the gains tend to be, uh, tend to be quite significant. And of course, the, the, more, the bigger reductions are going to be, the stronger the results will also will be. So if you go for a very ambitious scenario with close to full reduction of the actionable non-tariff measures, that's not all non-tariff measures, but the actionable, you, you will see gains uh, in the region of uh, $53 uh, billion for the United States and $158 uh, billion US dollars for the EU. Uh, and if you put that in, in the context of, uh, of GDP, it's, it's basically going to lead to a real income, uh, real income uh, um, increase by 0. almost 0.3% in the United States and 0.7% in the EU. Um, if you take these type of results and you try to put them perhaps in a, uh, in a more realistic uh, type of economic context, you will find different sort of results as well. I mean, there are several studies which have pointed to gains for the U.S. to be uh, significantly higher than what, what this particular uh, result is suggesting. But anyway, I mean, the point, the point I'm trying to make is that there are significant gains to be made from a free trade agreement between the EU and the United States, and they are significantly bigger than any other type of trade agreement that both sides uh, are going to be uh, engaged in if you, if you take multilateral trade agreements uh, out of that particular context. My second argument, or my second point, is going to be about a trade agreement that can help to discipline um, uh, regulatory policies in particular in, in the EU and the United States. Um, and I'm going to talk here more about the EU than I'm going to talk about the United States. What we've seen in the past five years is, um, you know, crisis-infected type of creeping protectionism, um, and we've seen it across the world. 
when you look at different estimates on, on, on the level of, of, of new protectionist measures taken uh, after the, the collapse of Lehman, you will find that European Union tends to rank very high in, in, those, uh, in those analyses in the sense that they represent, they have taken more uh, measures to discriminate or to restrict trade than any other uh, jurisdiction in the world. The U.S. also comes quite high up in, 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 in those, particular, those particular analyses. So the EU and the U.S. have certainly been complicit in this sort of post-crisis type of protectionist trend that we've been seeing. But before that, we can, of course, see that uh, many of these measures or similar type of measures have been taken recently. They were also in train uh, before the crisis, perhaps not in so many sectors, but more, they were more concentrated to, uh, to some sectors. But, but overall, what we've seen in the past decade, I would argue, is a trend where the regulatory development in both the United States, but particularly in Europe, uh, has gone in a direction where it has impeded on global commerce to a far higher degree than it did before. More recently, we have seen a very aggressive type of regulatory unilateralism especially on the part of Europe. You can go to sectors like energy, finance, or ICT uh, to find good examples of that. Uh, energy, pick, pick something like, for instance, the Renewable Energy Directive in Europe and the extent to which it, uh, it in effect, blocked access for a lot of, uh, um, a lot of um, fuel or feedstock uh, coming from the United States. In finance, you see a new proposal right now where the EU is going to slap uh, uh, a, a tax on financial transaction and is going to apply it extraterritorially. So also transactions taking place outside jurisdiction is going to be subject to that particular tax. On ICT, for instance, there is a new data privacy initiative in Brussels, which is horrendous in the way that it's trying to regulate uh, other parts of the world in a way that, that Europe favors. And we can, I, can, I can mention several other examples where the regulatory development have been of a kind where global commerce uh, have taken, uh, taken uh, uh, well, have been, been put in a very disadvantageous position when, when uh, regulatory ambitions have, and uh, regulatory ambitions have been taken primacy. So you go ahead and regulate without spending so much time thinking about either your obligations to trade agreements, your obligations to your trading partners, or to the extent to which this is going to provoke strong reactions from them. Um, and absent any progress in the World Trade Organization or elsewhere where you have strong type of trade agreements, I think there are a few other alternatives on the cards right now than an EU-US free trade agreement where you can actually get a trade agreement strong enough to help discipline uh, this type of, of aggressive regulatory type of action. Thirdly, um, a point on, on um, trade leadership um, and how I think um, an EU-US free trade agreement can be a helpful step in trying to establish a couple of new mechanisms and formats for leading uh, trade policy globally at a time when uh, trade policy done in Geneva is very much on the back burner and when we shouldn't expect uh, uh, strong and forceful across-the-board type of trade liberalization of the kinds that we've seen in many rounds in, in, in the past 50 years. I don't think we, 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 we're going to see much of that in the, next, uh, in the next couple of decades. 
The notion that trade policy begins and ends in Geneva, which is a WTO purist type of view, I think that's, that's been a, a, a myth for a long time. Um, what we have seen is a fairly long and progressive decline for the GATT and the WTO system as, uh, as, as the central driver of trade policy in the world. Um, I think we are going to see partial improvements, partial liberalization, sometimes very good initiatives being taken in Geneva in the next couple of years, for instance, on services. But the, the broader type of, of, uh, of agreements, I think, will be very unlikely to come with that from there. And the question here is basically, in that sort of post-WTO centrality type of trade policy world, what, what's going to be the response from the EU and the US then? How do they want to organize their trade policy in order to foster leadership that can also prompt and spark liberalization in, in other countries in the future? And I think the, the, a, a trade agreement between uh, the EU and the US will offer a platform uh, to advance new ideas and new mechanisms in order to deal with, with uh, critical commercial issues in, 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 in the next couple of, of, of years, perhaps the next couple of decades. So finally, I mean, if you go for an agreement of a kind which is going to advance market access and competition principles, um, uh, reduce non-tariff measures, and reduce um, uh, regulatory divergence between United States and Europe in a way which is going to advance uh, free market competition and increase transparency. If you, if you can find that sort of an overall agreement, then I think you're also going to have a very good starting point to trying to externalize some of the benefits of this agreement vis-a-vis -vis third countries, other countries. And there are lots of ways you can do that. You can do that through the individual bilateral or regional initiatives taken by the EU or the US. You can do that in plurilaterals. You can do that in multilateral approaches. But the point being here that uh, this is probably one of few, uh, one of few uh, alternatives that the EU and the United States will have in terms of, of driving larger type of initiatives which can also spark and spur trade liberalization in other, in other parts of the world where perhaps trade liberalization and, and free market reforms are more necessary than they are in, in, in this part of the world. My final point here is that when you look around the world and trade policy initiatives in the past 10 years, you'll see that there has been two things missing in trade negotiations and trade policy strategies, and that's been fear and profits. Like many other things in life, trade policy tends to be driven by profits and fear. You, you can be driven by profits in the sense that you believe you stand to gain quite substantially by liberalizing or open up your more markets, or you can fear that if you stand outside initiatives that are being taken, you're going to lose. You can lose current market access, you can lose future market access, you can lose current sales, or you can lose future sales. And I think overall, what we've been missing in the past years is exactly those two types of ingredients, because there are lots of economies in the world, including uh, United States and Europe, which have come to favor status quo, and not seen, and not you know, being able to look at the opportunity costs of status quo. Now we need to find a way to disincentivize uh, um, that particular option and, and make it much more costly to favor status quo. And I think here we have a good option to do that. Thank you. Sorry.
Well, we've just heard from Frederick about the benefits of these U.S.-EU trade investment talks, the possible boost to our economies uh, from concluding an agreement. And I agree with him on all of this. There's great potential here, not just for the economic benefits, but also for creating momentum for trade negotiations more generally. It's been a while since we've had a big trade negotiating success. And honestly, it's getting a little depressing. Uh, with the US-EU talks, maybe we can finally get a win for free trade, and we can then build on that. But I, I do have concerns about some aspects of the proposed talks. I think that free trade supporters need to scrutinize carefully agreements that are billed as free trade. And that's especially the case when free trade has been taken from the title, which seems to be the trend in, in recent US trade talks. We no longer call these agreements free trade agreements. They are partnerships. That's a little vague, and it makes me wonder what's in them. So we need to look at the details. We already hear from various reports that agriculture may be excluded to some degree, although it's a little unclear what that means in practice. Subsidies seem to be generally excluded, even though US and EU subsidies have been the source of many trade disputes. And trade remedies are excluded. So what exactly is the trade liberalization that's going to be in this trade agreement? Well, if you read the working group report, and I think you have a copy of it, the final report of the high-level working group on jobs and growth uh, that sets out a framework for these talks, it, it's clear that there's some real trade liberalization in here. Some might argue that this is actually preferential trade and not free trade because it's only opening up trade with Europe and not the rest of the world. I'll put that aside for now, although I think that's a good point. Uh, but so here are some examples of the trade liberalization that's going to be in these talks. One item on the agenda is the elimination of tariff duties on trade and goods. Now, it's true that duties on trade between the US and the EU are already low, but there's such a, a high amount of trade that uh, removing these barriers will still have a, a very positive impact. Another item is services liberalization. Financial services, legal services, education services. These are all great potential areas for, for opening up our economy to more international competition. And as an aside here, let me just mention that even competition in think tank services is good. That's why we're happy to have our uh, competitor, Frederick, here, give him a platform to gain some market share. We practice what we preach here at Cato. And then finally, as a, as a last example, opening up more government procurement to foreign competition is good. Um, again, there are great benefits from increased competition. And from our perspective, this is all great. And if all of this gets done, despite any concerns I express later, I'll be very happy. But although there's real trade liberalization in there, I do worry that core free trade issues are getting crowded out by other subjects. These days, trade agreements seem to be just as much about global rules on intellectual property or labor and the environment as about fighting protectionism. And to illustrate that point, I want to focus here on one issue in particular that's going to be playing an important role in the US-EU talks. And that issue, that issue is regulatory trade barriers. Should these issues be in trade talks or are they a distraction from the core goal? Sorry, this is going crazy. There. Are they a distraction from the core goal of reducing protectionism? Now, by focusing on this issue, I, I recognize that I, I run the risk of putting everyone in here to sleep. It can be a little dull, but this is the issue a lot of people are talking about as one of the main benefits of these talks, and I think it has to be fleshed out. What is it that these talks are going to do with the issue of regulation? What do people mean by regulatory trade barriers? Um, the, the working report actually calls, refers to regulatory issues and non-tariff barriers. I've condensed it a little bit. So I'm not sure what everyone else means. And my sense is that people may be using this term differently. But um, here's how I think about it based on what's in this working group report. 
Within this general category of regulatory trade barriers, there are several subcategories. And I'm first going to set them out briefly, and then I'll come back to them and discuss them in a little more detail. First category is regulatory divergence. So here you might have regulations in the same policy area, for example, automobile safety, that differ across countries. Different people regulating the same thing may come out differently. Sometimes this is just arbitrary. Uh, other times it reflects different policy preferences. Second category, the domestic regulatory process. How governments regulate, the institutions, the procedures, the factors they take into account. So think of cost-benefit analysis or the precautionary principle. Third category, regulatory protectionism. I think everybody probably has a pretty good sense of what protectionism is. I won't say more. I'm going to come back to that one in just a second. And then the final category is kind of a catch-all category, non-protectionist trade barriers. Um, so a law or regulation is not considered protectionism, but it still impedes trade in some way. And there may be an overlap here with uh, the first two categories. So now a little more detail, but first let me get regulatory protectionism out of the way. So imagine you have an environmental protection statute. And somebody slips in a provision that discriminates against foreign firms in favor of domestic firms. Well, that's already covered by WTO rules. It's prohibited. And in fact, that example comes from the first WTO dispute settlement decision, U.S. gasoline. Over the years, there have been many WTO cases involving regulatory protectionism. The WTO is pretty good at this issue, I think. So that's done, taken care of, won't be part of the U.S.-EU talks as far as I can see. So, and take that one out. And let's focus on the issues that will be covered by the talks. So first up is regulatory divergence. And here I just have a quote from the working group, group report with certain passages emphasized. There's a reference to promoting regulatory compatibility and reducing costs stemming from regulatory differences. This is touted as a, an area of great potential economic benefit. And I agree that it is. One country uses one standard. Another country uses another standard. And companies are left to sort it out at a high cost to everyone. Well, can't we do something about this? I think the answer is yes, but the hard questions are what to do and where to do it. Does it make sense to do it in a trade agreement? Or should it be done through some kind of simple and direct regulatory cooperation uh, where regulators for specific industries from different countries meet and discuss ways to make regulations more compatible? I'll come back to this and say a little bit more later. The next issue is the regulatory process, how governments regulate. The working group report refers to things like impact assessments and good regulatory practices. In a sense, it's about how to regulate effectively and efficiently. Now, in the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Obama administration's other big trade initiative, uh, we've had a sneak peek at what they have in mind here. What they seem to be trying to do, at least according to a leaked draft, is to create a regulatory process that is harmonized across countries. Now, when I say harmonize, uh, what I mean is that other countries should adopt the U.S. regulatory process. So, for example, other countries should create a central regulatory body, sort of like OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. It seems unlikely that a U.S.-EU trade negotiation would proceed in the same way. No doubt the EU has some ideas of its own on how to regulate. I don't think the U.S. can push its views as, as easily. Um, not that it's clear that they can push them easily in the TPP, but it seems that they are trying. So the working group report suggests that these issues will be discussed uh, in some way. I think it's safe to say this is going to be controversial. Just to take an obvious example, uh, the EU likes the precautionary principle as part of its regulatory process. The U.S. is very concerned about this. Will they be able to agree on whether and how to use it? That sounds like a pretty daunting task to me. 
Now, finally, there's the issue of non-protectionist trade barriers, things that don't discriminate against foreign products, but somehow someone still thinks they're a problem because of the way they affect trade. Now, perhaps along these lines, in the working group report, and I've put the language up here on the screen, um, there's a good deal of emphasis on expanding the existing WTO disciplines on TBT and SPS measures. So TBT, technical barriers to trade, SPS, sanitary and phytosanitary measures. Loosely speaking, these are product regulations and food safety regulations. Now, I don't want to reject this out of hand, but it's, it's not clear to me how the existing WTO rules get these issues wrong. Um, and it's not clear to me what specific problems the negotiators think they can solve with new rules. But I'm looking forward to further clarification of what they might have in mind. So with all that as background of what the US-EU trade and investment rules might cover in the area of regulation, the question I want to raise is, is it a good idea to address these issues in trade talks? I'm a little skeptical. There are two things in particular that worry me. First is, when you have multiple regional trade agreements establishing rules for domestic regulation, conflicts can arise. So right now, as I said, we, we have the Trans-Pacific Partnership talks going on. We have CETA, which is the, the Canada-Europe trade talks that David Talbot is going to talk about earlier. And then, of course, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership. They are all going to govern this in some way. Well, that sounds really messy to me. Um, can we really avoid conflicts between what these agreements say? And it may turn out that International regulation of domestic regulation just adds more layers of regulation. The second concern I have is that these rules, these rules intrude deeply into sensitive domestic affairs. Regulation covers many policy areas. As we here at Cato like to point out, governments regulate a lot, and uh, not always for the good. But so as a result, adding in these provisions about regulations will make the talks more controversial among various trade critics and will make negotiations harder to complete. So with that skepticism in mind, how should we proceed on regulation? Well, in my view, the latter two issues, the regulatory process and the non-protectionist trade barriers, may be too much. I'm just not sure it's feasible to deal with them in, in trade talks any more than the WTO already does. I haven't heard as much about the specific benefits here, and the costs seem high in terms of, of uh, interfering with domestic policymaking. On the other hand, with the regulatory divergence issues, I think they can probably be handled somewhere. The economic benefits are more clear, and some aspects shouldn't be too controversial, I don't think. Mutual recognition of different automobile safety standards sounds fairly easy to me. Um, Hormone-treated beef is, is probably more challenging. As to where to address these issues, I think there may be simpler solutions than a trade agreement, focusing more on regulatory cooperation mechanisms. So as an example, the US has something now with Canada called the Regulatory Cooperation Council, uh, where there's a process for resolving issues like this with private sector input. The private sector can identify problems. Governments can work out how to solve the ones that are solvable. This council is fairly new, and I don't think we have a great sense yet uh, of what it can accomplish. Um, I think the degree of success Canada and the US have with that may help show the best way forward for these issues. The US and the EU have something similar that's in a less developed state. So let me just close with the following. I think it's a mistake to get caught up in, in dreams of a transatlantic single market where anything we sell in the US can be sold in the EU and, and, and in, in the EU and vice versa. Maybe someday in, in the distant future, we can have something like that. But for now, I would argue we should be more realistic. Let's think about what can be achieved and think about the best way to achieve it. Um, I think if we try to do too much, we may end up with nothing, and that will be a disappointing result.
Please shut. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, actually, what we just started is, uh, David and Frederick will have great things to say, but I think that Dan is really going to take the role of Steven Spielberg, because I think what uh, Simon just talked about is going to be exactly the opposite of what I'm going to talk about. So it's almost like a Lincoln-Douglas debate here. <laughs> and maybe we'll get the Academy Award uh, for this production at some point. Because I think what, what Simon said is, I think, uh, a perfectly uh, 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 interesting, incredible view if you want to talk about 19th century trade. Uh, today, global companies don't look at trade this way. They look at trade much more comprehensively and recognize that regulatory issues uh, um, uh, have become uh, a key issue for how they structure their businesses and operate across borders. And uh, so that's, that's point number one. Point number two, um, uh, I believe that the two governments uh, have decided to move forward with a regulatory cooperation uh, agenda. So I think the horse is out of the barn. And therefore, what I'm going to talk about this morning uh, in, in the sense of both you know, standards and regulatory cooperation is what we should be thinking about to try to make a success out of this. Uh, we've got to, you know, it's, it's done, it's on the agenda, and, and therefore I think it's very important that people recognize that, as, as Simon said, this is a new issue. This is a really new, tough issue, and therefore a lot, and, uh, a lot of time has to be spent by both governments and the private sector in how to organize themselves to make it a success because it's on the table. Uh, um, the interesting part to me, uh, again, playing off what Simon said, is that at one point, for a brief moment, in 1948, uh, the, um, it appeared that trade negotiations were going to be comprehensive. The Havana Charter covered trade, investment, anti-competitive business practices. Uh, but what happened was it was just a brief moment that the, uh, particularly uh, the US business community and the US government uh, was uncomfortable with such a comprehensive approach at the time. And uh, uh, therefore, the Congress rejected the Havana Charter. And the only thing that survived was GATT, which is the very narrow uh, trade element. But what's happened subsequently, if you look at the history of trade negotiations, that you know, we, we spent uh, you know, several decades just doing tariffs, and then the business community and government began to realize there's something else out there. There are non-tariff barriers out there. And we had something that I would love to, I, I spent a lot of time with the Williams Commission in the early 70s. Uh, that if we could ever replicate the Williams Commission, I, from a historical perspective, I urge you all to read the Williams Commission because it was prescient. It outlined, it was a, a commission appointed by President Nixon, which actually outlined what became US trade policy for 20 years and how to deal, it, it, it led to the launch of the Tokyo Round. It led to the impetus of US business and, and other interest groups and the governments recognizing you had to deal with issues more than just traditional trade issues. Uh, if you wanted to have a competitive and open inner, uh, world, trade, uh, world economic system. 
So in the 80s, you had GATS, you had the TRIPS agreement, and labor and environment in the early 90s, and other issues began to develop, including uh, starting to deal with regulatory issues. And I think that, that, as I said, this negotiation is going to be the most different negotiation and the toughest we've ever had because it's going to include a sharp and specific focus on regulatory cooperation. And, and I do agree with Simon, there are already international rules that deal with discriminatory trade practices. I don't think what this, this is what it's about. This is about creating a higher degree of certainty for uh, actors within uh, economies of what kind of rules they're going to face. That's different than discriminatory trade barriers, and that's a, that's a distinction. So uh, what, what I want to do right now is talk about some org what I think are some of the guiding principles that should be got, you know, that we should all be thinking about in, 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 in our different roles to how to make these negotiations a success. First, we have to recognize something where I would agree with Simon that the fundamental principle of the regulatory cooperation uh, negotiations is going to be maintaining respect for sovereignty. Uh, this is not an exercise in creating a common market with common rules uh, that will, everyone will have the same regulation. Second, we have to recognize that unlike some of our more recent FTAs, the US-EU negotiators are going to uh, have to move, they're going to move beyond the aspirational type regulatory principles that we see in some of our uh, latest FTAs. And that's going to focus, I think, on two areas in regulatory cooperation, what I call horizontal discussions, which is going to be creating basic rules like transparency, uh, availability of data, what kind of uh, uh, impact assessments. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will all come out in the same place in a regulation where it would always be harmonized, but that people who deal, companies and other interest groups who have to uh, be involved in the regulatory process in the US and EU will be operating under the same general principles of how regulations are made. The second part of, of this negotiation, I think, is going to involve what I call vertical regulatory issues. There are going to be some sectors, like the automobile sector, where there's going to be an effort to have mutual recognition of standards. So I think this horizontal negotiation will go on as well as vertical negotiation. Third, I think in this area, uh, much for what I think Simon talked about, was this, nego this agreement, particularly with regulatory issues, is going to have to be what I call a living agreement. Uh, many of you in the audience have worked on uh, trade negotiations and have seen trade agreements, you know, some good, some not so good. But one of the things that I think usually happens with trade agreements uh, is they're negotiated and they go on the shelf. And you apply the rules, and, but nothing ever happens beyond that to the, in the trade agreement. This trade agreement, because particularly in the regulatory area, uh, it's going to be a, a long ongoing process, both horizontally and vertically. This trade agreement has to have a framework which lets the two governments continue to engage and lets the stakeholders continue to engage. I think that's different than we've ever had in any other trade agreement. Um, and fourth guiding principle, I think the regulatory cooperation element of the US-EU uh, negotiation, more than any other is, uh, a negotiation I've ever seen, is going to rely very heavily 
uh, if it's going to succeed, on input from the private sector. Um, there are already signs that the negotiators uh, are disposed to engage in vertical negotiations only for those sectors that on both sides of the uh, uh, Atlantic have worked together and are almost developing a common roadmap for the negotiators. And I think this is very important uh, that without this cooperation between uh, business sectors uh, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, you're not going to uh, have a dynamic vertical negotiation. So if, you have a, if you're in a sector that you would like to have the two governments begin to discuss you know, regulatory uh, convergence and cooperation, you're going to have to work with your counterparts in Europe in order to develop a consensus and a roadmap. Fifth, I think, and this is very important, this negotiation more than any other negotiation with respect to regulatory issues is going to have to recognize that the regulators are critical to success. They have a critical role to play. Uh, you know, trade negotiators, USTR, DG Trade, they know what they're doing on traditional trade issues. They do not have the expertise nor the resources uh, nor the political muscle to engage uh, uh, deeply into the regulatory negotiations. And there's, there, is, there is some history here. Um, I was involved in the GATS financial service negotiations, and they were stalled for a number of years until Jeff Lang, when he was deputy USTR, realized that he had to have the financial negotiators at the table and that he went to Tim Geithner, who was then Undersecretary of the Treasury for Monetary Affairs, and said, look, if we're going to have a GATS financial services agreement, you know, the trade people and the financial regulators have got to work together. They have to be at the negotiating table together. And he and Tim did an excellent job in doing this and mobilizing this type of partnership around the world, which resulted in the 1997 financial services uh, agreement in the WTO. I think, finally, these negotiations have to be conducted with a high degree of ambition. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a great believer you can't start on a long trip if you're really being hangdog about it. You've got to be ambitious and you've got to be creative. Uh, but you also have to recognize that since these, this is a new and very complicated legally and politically and in policy terms, that the interested parties are going to have to be well-tuned to what's going on and ready to adjust expectations as needed, which, you know, and adjusting expectations to me in a traditional trade context is often code for either giving up an objective in whole or in part. I think this isn't going to be the case here, as I said, if we can get this living agreement right, that you might not achieve everything you want vertically, or even the governments achieving what they want horizontally, but there would be an ongoing process. So I think that there's going to be, uh, uh, people need to be creative and, and very sensitive to the dynamics of negotiation. Now, the one thing that uh, is, is absolutely certain, this regulatory cooperation initiative is going to be very confusing. And so, um, uh, and I think there are going to be a lot of different ideas. The, 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 the high-level report really doesn't say what they're going to do. Uh, what's interesting, when we did TRIPS and GATS, there was more, uh, a more detailed framework for what those negotiations would look like. 
this, we're not there yet. The governments may have it. One of the great things is one of the issues they'll talk about uh, in, in this uh, regulatory negotiation, in fact, it's in the trade negotiations, is transparency. I would argue we have less transparency with our negotiators today of what's going on in negotiations than we had, for example, during the Uruguay round or NAFTA. But one of the things I commend to you to, to read about in terms of some of the ideas that are, are being developed here is read the joint submission by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Business Europe on this issue. They've done, I think, the most um, extensive work to date in defining the scope and details of what a, what a U.S.-EU regulatory cooperation agreement would look like, and I really commend it to you. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, they break it down into four parts. One that would be an endorsement of good regulatory practices by both the U.S. and EU, you know, transparency, uh, risk assessment. Uh, it doesn't mean we'll all come out the same, but it, it basically the same type of rules. Uh, the second would be, uh, you know, set up a process where the stakeholders can be much more involved than before. Uh, third, uh, and I think this is a very innovative idea, try to, to enhance cooperation and coordination between U.S. and EU regulators where there's a determination that a particular regulation would have such a significant effect on U.S.-EU relationship. Um, and, and, five, and part four is this idea of a living agreement. You know, how, what kind of institutional mechanism is necessary to make sure that this is an ongoing process? This is not going to be easy. Uh, uh, and I think it's not, as Simon said, I don't think this should address what are non-tariff barriers. I think this should only be addressing convergence and what are the best rules that regulators should follow to make sure it's a fair process. I think that's a little bit different where you get less mixed up with what existing trade elements of FTAs and the WTO does. And that's why I think you, you have to really divide this up in, in, in much more surgically. I think that to sum up, let me just say, I think that uh, to have a real shot at success, we won, we have to avoid uh, falling into the rhythm of tried and tested trade negotiations. This is not a trade negotiation on the regulatory side. This is going to be something new. Number two, we've got to be ambitious and creative. Uh, and, and recognize this is not going to result in a snapshot like trade agreements are. This is what we're going to do uh, when the agreement goes into effect and, the, and, a, and then you have specific transition objectives. This is going to be an ongoing process. And finally, I think that, uh, again, I think this is a negotiation more than ever before. Stakeholders, if they're interested, have got to organize themselves and do the work if you don't, you're just not going to get into this very important negotiation. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Well, thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting me here today. I have the dubious honor of following uh, the, all the members of this distinguished panel and also talking about a subject matter which uh, many of you may not know anything about uh, or care about for that matter, but I will try and make it as interesting as humanly possible. Uh, a little bit about my background. Um, I work for Eli Lilly and Company. Those of you who are not familiar with the pharmaceutical sector, we're about the eighth or tenth largest biopharma in the world, uh, but the fourth largest biotech company in the world. 
Um, we have about half of our business outside of the United States now, and about 14,000 of those employees are in Europe. Uh, Europe represents about 25% of our business. So obviously, as an industry that is so heavily integrated across the Atlantic, we're very keenly aware of the discussions uh, around this agreement have been in, in favor for many years. Uh, but another one of my uh, assignments uh, within Lilly is to uh, look at Canada. Uh, my home country, uh, though uh, based on my remarks uh, in, in public lately, I may be losing my passport anytime soon. Uh, we are uh, very keenly interested in the, in the agreement that the Europeans and the Canadians uh, have been negotiating for some time. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned, not only because that's a sort of a parallel track to what we're talking about today, but also because Canada is a recent entrant into the TPP negotiations as of December. And I think there's some implications regarding that negotiation uh, that we can learn from uh, about the, uh, the, uh, the Canadian-EU negotiations. So it's been referenced a little bit already. Uh, why do we care about the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Partnership Agreement, or CETA, which I do think is better than TTIP, which is what we've come up with uh, for the US-EU negotiations, but uh, we can have that debate another day. Um, this was an agreement uh, or a negotiation that uh, was begun um, in earnest in 2009. So we have uh, two economies which are not parallel, like uh, we have in the United States and Europe. Uh, we're not talking about a negotiation among equal partners. I'll give you some statistics to point out why. Canada is the EU's 12th largest trading partner, uh, accounting for only 1.6% of EU external trade. Um, and the EU is Canada's second largest uh, trading partner to the United States. Um, the value of trade between the two countries was 52.5 billion euros in 2011, so not insignificant, but certainly not on the scale of the uh, US-EU uh, discussion. And Europe has a trade surplus with Canada in most of the major categories that are under negotiation. Um, machinery, transport, equipment, and chemicals are the EU's major exports to Canada. Um, and uh, Canada's major exports uh, aspirationally are in the agricultural sector, uh, trade and services, financial services, and other areas. Um, financial services, as we've talked about, and investment are also very, very key to this uh, ongoing negotiation. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, EU FDI investment in Canada was 198 billion euros in 2010, and Canadian FDI investment in the EU was about 143 billion euros on that same day, in that same year. So we're talking about a significant trading relationship, but one that pales in comparison to what we're talking about today between Canada, uh, to, between the US and Europe. The trade negotiation was set up to cover a very comprehensive list of, of, of uh, categories. So access to each other's markets for goods, services, and public procurement. Uh, I'll get to, down to that last one uh, when we talk about where things stand. The framework for investment between the two bodies. Rules that frame trade, including intellectual property and competition. The movement of professionals between the US and Canada, which I think is an issue we haven't addressed today. And sustainable development, uh, which will probably be unique to that agreement and not in the one we're going to be talking about uh, more, a trade that is not at the expense of labor and environmental standards. So uh, they had a very strong framework for this agreement going forward. I think the aspiration uh, in the original discussions of the negotiation was that this would be concluded by 2011. And checking my calendar this morning, we're well past that time. So I think that there's something that we need to be concerned about related to the, the time lag that it has taken these unequal trading partners, at least in comparison to the United States and the Europe, about how long it's taking to get this deal done. For our industry, and I am uh, inherently self-interested in these trade agreements, uh, one of the major issues that's on the table between the US and Europe 
uh, is intellectual property. And in our uh, sector, our European colleagues have been pushing very, very hard for the Commission to address a lot of problems in the pharmaceutical IP system that we have in Canada. Now, some of you may be surprised that Canada is in the category of a scoff law when it comes to intellectual property, but they are. In fact, the Chamber's Global Intellectual Property Center put out a report in January which ranks Canada much closer to India and China on the IP index than it does to the UK uh, and some of the other major developed countries, including the United States. So we have a lot of work to do in the Canadian IP uh, segment. Um, that, not surprisingly, is one of the negotiating issues which still remains on the table. Uh, along with, as I mentioned, public procurement. Uh, in fact, th there's a movement in Canada, which I think has generally become very pro-trade in years past, uh, for municipalities to start pushing back against any signing of an EU agreement with Canada uh, because of the concerns about uh, access of European firms to public procurement tr contracts in Canadian municipal government. But that is uh, just one of, the, one of the issues that remains outstanding. So uh, for in the biopharmaceutical sector, we're looking for three things. I don't know how many IP experts we have in the room, but there are three major concerns. One is that EU has a very different standard for the protection of clinical data that we generate. They have two years more protection than the Canadians do. The Europeans are asking for that to be a level playing field. Um, they're asking for the Canadians to adopt a system of patent term restoration, which compensates companies for the length of time and regulatory process that it takes to get our products to market. Canada is one of the only OECD countries uh, that does not have that. And third is this very strange, obscure uh, development in Canada, which allows uh, generic companies a right of appeal when they challenge our patents, uh, but innovators have to take uh, a secondary litigation in order to defend our patents. And uh, this has become a particular problem in Canada related to the innovative sector in the last couple of years. Um, and hence why one of the reasons why Canada is so highly placed on the special 301 uh, list by USTR every year. So the U.S. has been pressing very, very hard on a number of issues, and I think uh, everyone is a bit surprised. I think the Canadians uh, tend to believe themselves very European in their outlook uh, towards many things, including social policy and some of the issues that were on the negotiating table. But as I pointed out, we're here four years on and still don't have an agreement. Um, I think in reality, and, and some may disagree with me, Canadians are probably more like Americans in the way that uh, we, we do approach these things uh, with some notable differences. However, uh, the Europeans, uh, I, you know, I, I happen to have the benefit of just getting off a plane last night from Brussels where we were meeting with a lot of the negotiators, not only about the uh, U.S. agreement, but also about the CETA negotiations. Um, the Chamber, as, as has been pointed out, has a, a fairly active effort underway to make sure uh, that the interests of U.S. businesses uh, transatlantically are represented in the early parts of these negotiations. So I was part of a delegation that went to Brussels and met with all of the uh, parliamentarians, uh, the, the relevant committees, uh, Business Europe, and the uh, trade negotiators uh, Monday and Tuesday of this week to get their impression of how things were moving on um, and what the structure of an agreement going forward looking about. I took that occasion, of course, to ask a lot of questions about how they see the parallels between uh, the CETA negotiations and what it means for uh, the, uh, the US-EU negotiations. So uh, many of you who monitor these things carefully will, will have seen that, uh, that uh, Chairman de Gucht, uh, no, sorry, uh, Commissioner de Gucht's remarks at the uh, Trade Committee of, of the EU Parliament last week uh, were heavily critical of Canada in the negotiations and pressing them to make concessions in order for these agreements to take place. Um, this, I think, follows on the heels of some anxiety in Ottawa um, after the State of the Union address when the President announced that this negotiation would move forward 
Canadians are feeling enormous pressure, and I think for some of the statistical reasons that I've given you, of being forgotten and left behind uh, should this negotiation with the, with the United States proceed quickly. Um, now, that, that fear may be legitimate or not legitimate, but certainly in discussing with EU officials this week, they certainly made some very pointed remarks about not having endless resources to negotiate ad nauseum on trade agreements which had less commercial significance than the one, uh, ones they're looking at. Just for context, um, you know, maybe the United States is a little bit behind in this way anyway. The Canadians are currently under the process of negotiating 13 free trade agreements, um, some, of them, some of them big, some of them small. And the EU currently has nine which are underway, uh, some of which have been under negotiation for some time. So I think we need to look at both of those countries to find out how good their closing power is on these sorts of negotiations and what lessons we can draw upon in terms of what that was going to mean for a, an agreement which is 10, 20 times larger and far more comprehensive. Um, I think that you know the scope of this agreement, at least from our industry's perspective, needs to be comprehensive. Uh, but the disagreement seems to be in the definition of what comprehensive actually is. So a very interesting uh, set of developments in terms of this. So domestically, I think it's important for us to, to look uh, and anticipate what sort of opposition there'll be to these sorts of discussions in the U.S. And I think we can draw upon a couple of things. In the European context, um, you know, we've talked a lot on this side of the ocean as to whether there will be an intellectual property chapter in any negotiation going forward, whether it be at the regulatory level or, or a more standard IP chapter within the negotiation. Um, I think the Europeans are smarting in many ways from the ACTA negotiations, and, and Frederick is far closer to this than I was. Uh, but there's a lot of caution and a lot of discussion that we had over the last two days to try and figure out how you address some of those questions that were raised. That was largely a grassroots effort uh, conducted over the internet, which scared the living daylights out of many members of the EU Parliament. And I think it is instructive for us to make sure that uh, on both sides of the, of the ocean, we're very well prepared for that sort of criticism going forward, no matter what's in the agreement. You know there's a lot of constituencies in Canada and in the EU and in the United States who are concerned about this sort of agreement uh, in terms of agriculture, in terms of other standards. Um, and there's a lot of domestic interests that we're going to have to take into account. And communication was something that we didn't do very well in some of these agreements past, and, and certainly in ACTA. And I think that we need to learn our lessons. We're starting to see mounting opposition in Canada, as I mentioned, from the municipalities, uh, from tradition, traditionally anti-trade NGOs. Uh, from uh, in, in our sector, the generic industry, who aren't particularly interested in, in having higher IP standards in Canada because that would mean an impact on their business. So there's a lot of opposition uh, beyond the, uh, whether it be measured or not, the enthusiasm that we see on this side of the ocean and certainly the enthusiasm we see in the EU, I think driven, as it should be, by concerns over the competitiveness of both of our economies. Um, if we are losing ground to Asia, what better way of finding like-minded, hopefully, uh, and interested parties to negotiate with. Certainly a lot of our advantages in a lot of sectors, particularly life sciences that I'm so close to, uh, we are waning in terms of our influence there. So there's room and, and I think a lot of scope to look at those, uh, those, those negotiations across the ocean that we can take that is going to streamline a business like ours, which is heavily integrated across the two uh, oceans. But a note of caution, I think, is, 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 is warranted here because, you know, we have... Um, uh, the Canadian government and the EU government who have taken on a very, very ambitious trade agenda. And it's been very, very difficult for them to close these deals, even with economies which are much smaller. So uh, a note of caution there. 
Um, I, I, I thought, I thought it would be relevant just to turn back to Commissioner de Gooch's remarks last week. He was quoted last week before the EU Parliament Trade Committee saying that uh, what was on the table did not please me and I did not make an agreement. And that was what, uh, in reflection of where the things stood in terms of the Canadian uh, negotiations. He called on Canada to take further steps uh, or there will not be an agreement. And I think that the rhetoric that we heard uh, in the last two days was certainly very reflective of that. So I think we should ask ourselves what we can learn from this so far. I think that you know there's a very ambitious timescale for this based on uh, a lot of political tone or turnover that we're going to see both in the United States and in Europe uh, before the end of 2014. I think there's a lot of goodwill. I think there's business momentum. I think there's support. But I think we need to learn very carefully uh, from what we can see from the ongoing negotiations and, and uh, make sure that we learn from those lessons. So uh, I'll stop at that point and uh, look forward to the uh, discussion that we have going forward. Thank you, David, and thank you to the other panelists. We have uh, heard a range of views, uh, we're obviously at the early stages of this negotiation, so uh, a lot of answers uh, remain elusive, but you probably have questions. We have some time for questions. Uh, please raise your hand. I'm going to call on you. Wait for a microphone to come to you. Identify yourself, and please get to your question as, as quickly as you can. Uh, let start, let's start all the way there in the back, then. Thanks. Hi. Sarah Flam from the Migration Policy Institute. Um, I had a question regarding, so it sounds like regulatory coordination is going to be part of whatever agreement. I had a question regarding the coordination of not just goods, but services. So um, regulatory agreement, will it include kind of a credential recognition component? Can you hold the mic closer? I'm yeah, having a hard time hearing you. Sorry. Is this better? Yes. Yeah. Um, I had a question regarding the movement of not just goods between the continents, but of services. So, for example, recognition of credentials, uh, business people moving between the countries. And um, I could imagine maybe this would occur instead of a country-country basis, as trade in goods might happen, because there's some agreement within the Schengen zone on services, whether there be like a Schengen-US agreement, or just where trade and services might fit in within these negotiations. Um, does somebody want to take a, the Polish plumber across the Atlantic kind of uh, discussion? Anybody want to answer that? I can start, but I, I don't know too much. Uh, services will definitely be part of the negotiations. Um, I, I don't think maybe somebody else on the panel has more details. I mean, I, you know, I haven't heard mu much in terms of the way of specifics as to whether they'll get into issues like that. I mean, certainly they could. It's certainly within the general framework of trade and services. Um, and this kind of thing you know, has been addressed to some extent in other services agreements, um, but I don't know any of the, the specific details there. Um, I, I think services is going to, is, are going to be covered in the traditional trade sense, the different modes uh, of delivery. Uh, I think with respect to, so movement of personnel is always uh, an issue, uh, but it's always a tough issue, and I think it's going to be much more influenced uh, uh, as we see what happens in our immigration package here uh, as opposed to the negotiations, but that remains to be seen. I think with respect to the regulatory side, um, again, this is not a, mar you know, the regulatory issues are not market access issues. They're not, you know, they, they, they go much deeper than that in terms of what are the different regulations. And as I said, horizontally, it's more the question of what kind of rules you apply, like transparency, analysis of alternatives, uh, risk assessment. On the vertical side, my impression is, and if anyone in the audience knows more, 
jump in. My impression is there's a debate going on of whether financial services would actually be part of the regulatory uh, uh, cooperation discussions or whether the finance ministries are very happy having uh, this high-level US-EU uh, financial services dialogue. And that's where financial services regulatory issues should stay. So I think that's an open issue right now. You know, I, I think that was certainly a key point of discussion the last couple of days with this broad-ranging group um, that from the U.S. Chamber, which included a number of financial services companies who are, are very keen to learn what their thoughts are from that going forward. And, but there's my, a lot of hesitation. And my impression is the U.S. financial services industry would like to be included yeah. in the, the U.S.-EU regulatory issues. But I think that, you know, uh, this is going to be decided, I think, primarily by the finance ministries. That's a very important question, but let's, let's move on. Right, right here. Here we go. Hello. Hey, I'm uh, Jamie Strawbridge from Inside U.S. Trade. Uh, question for Mr. Levy also on uh, regulatory issues. Uh, you said in your remarks you talked about how USTR doesn't have the resources and maybe not the political muscle either to kind of deal with some of these very tough regulatory issues. but. I was hoping you could expand on that and kind of talk about the implications. Like, uh, for instance, one thing I'm wondering is, in this trade negotiation, uh, typically USTR takes the lead uh, in all areas. But I was wondering if in the USEU talks, maybe regulators I, should have take the lead in I, specific areas and kind of farm I, out responsibilities. I, I think uh, you know, organizations should organize themselves. So I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I think USTR will always have the lead. But the question is, just as I, the point I was making, I think it's very important. One, there has to be a partnership with the regulators. Uh, USTR, I think, knows that. I hope they know, I think they know that. I think that was their experience in GATT services. So one is USTR is in charge of these negotiations. I think that's first. Second, that the, the, uh, uh, there has to be a partnership with regulators. How they want to organize themselves in this sense, I think you know, that's their business. I, I don't think people on the outside should start moving deck chairs around uh, when people on the inside know best how to do that. Uh, I think third, on resources, I am concerned about resources. Um, yeah, USTR is a, you know, is, is in my certainly 40 years I've done this, it's an outstanding team. But, you know, we have TPP, USEU, uh, International Services Agreement, expansion of ITA. Uh, you know, there's discussions with China on a bit. There's a lot. Of, USCR has a very full plate. Uh, they're very talented people. But do they have the resources? And, now, and, and, and I'm concerned about that because they should have the resources to do this. So, again... Uh, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, as I said, I don't know what their budget is. I just think there's a lot on their plate, and we better give them the resources to do all of this. And, and that includes the, and travel budgets. Week, end of next week, the, as and, of next week, there will be no USTR. Yeah, and, and <laughs> that includes, that and by the way, that includes a travel budget. There's a lot of stuff going on around the world. Other question? Yes, Bob. Yeah, there we go. Yes. So, um, you know, from the very start, uh, this proposal, this enterprise has been marked by an extremely high level of rhetoric, in some cases, particularly at the outset, a high level of euphoria about 
all the advantages to the global economy and certainly to the two continental economies that uh, are engaged. Um, benefits extending to the, certainly to the political, political sphere as well. It's been very, very hard, as you all know, to, for people to get their hands around this thing, to, to define what could be in the agreement. Now, I understand there is a table of contents. There is a list of chapters um, that, will be, that have been agreed, that will be uh, fleshed out, fleshed out. Um, but um, you know, what, where we're really going, what the, uh, what the goals are, are, are very difficult. It's even now, in spite of the, the, uh, the uh, statement by the, the HLWG, to fathom. And I must say, I, I got to say that in spite of the excellence of your comments, um, we are still not clear, apart from some general comments about, I thought, uh, about, the, about the aspects of the regulatory uh, convergence or whatever that could be achieved, still not clear uh, where we're going. Um, there's still a very high level of generality. Um, and there's a constant re repetition of the need for ambition, constantly. Uh, uh, comprehensiveness and ambition. So I'm wondering whether over this year of discussion between the EU and the US, there's been, uh, there's been a serious conversation about whether some of the, the lasting profound uh, issues that have divided our economies can be addressed. Um, let's say cultural differences, let's say maritime, civil aviation, the regulatory, the precautionary principle, um, labeling, geographic labeling. Is this, uh, is this negotiation at the outset, is the, is the level, of, level of ambition high enough to address these nagging issues, these deeply dividing issues, or will uh, we simply look ahead, as Hook indicated in the statement that you've uh, talked to, uh, cited, Dan, um, um, or rather that uh, Mr. Talbot cited, uh, Dehook says we'll, we'll have a lot more progress, pro a bigger chance of progress if we go, if we try to uh, to uh, uh, deal with new regulations, not old ones. Well, that's leaving a huge amount of water uh, in that dam, and we're a, a little, and really not a great deal of prospect for achieving very much. So, sorry for the long question, but what what is the level of ambition? Is it strong enough? Frederick, do you want you want to take a shot at maybe the, the trade-off between the level of ambition and doability? Kind of frame it in that that context. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's a very good observation, Bob. I mean, it's, uh, and I think it's it's impossible for anyone to say right now what they actually mean with the sort of general phrases, the platitudes that we've been hearing for quite some time now. Um, I mean, if you try to, you know, go beneath perhaps the official rhetoric, and when you talk to negotiators, and of course, I'm 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 talking mostly to European negotiators, so I'm I'm. I'm able to speak more about them than about people here. Um, firstly, I think there is an ambition and a willingness to actually deal with some of those issues that for a long time have been irritants on the part of the U.S. with Europe. Uh, partly because they are also irritants for many in Europe, including those people that tend to deal with trade. Um, so, you know, like on many occasions in the past, what is being offered here is an opportunity to revisit some of some of the regulations that have been created, not by trade negotiators, but by by other 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 parts of the government, and at least 
find ways to moderate, take away the some of the edges from them. That doesn't mean that you can go as far as, for instance, taking away the entire precautionary principle. Uh, but it, 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 it means that you can actually moderate that principle and its effect is going to have on regulations. For instance, um, Simon talked um, um, and mentioned and, and Chuck did too about various sorts of processes to establish. But when you looked at many of these issues, they are entirely about process. I mean, if you, if you take, for instance, the precautionary principle, which is uh, uh, a principle which is, in effect, being politically decided in various types of, you know, it could be you know, approval decisions uh, and, and, and other types of decisions by authorities, what it actually should stand for. I mean, what is the precautionary principles? And if you then are going to come up with a, you know, a common procedure which is going to give stronger weight to scientific evidence in that particular process, well, that's certainly going to have an effect on, on what the precautionary principle is going to have for, as an effect on the regulations that you create. So it, it, it may not sound very impressive in the abstract, but many of these issues will probably be dealt with by, by finding ways to um, uh, reinforce uh, the role of transparency, scientific advice, etc., cetera, in, in, in such processes. Um, so that was a long answer to say that. I think there is uh, an ambition and a willingness on the European side to try to deal with some of these rougher edges of its regulations, but not to take away them entirely. I, I, I think Bob's asked a good question, but I think it's a question that I find exciting. I, I think one of the great things that certainly, I, I have a personal experience here, but I think other people may have their own experiences. I think when you design, working on the TRIPS agreement and the GATS agreement, there was no roadmap and it, it had to be worked on even during the negotiations to, to, to develop uh, the, the ultimate framework for it. So I think that's sort of, to me, that's the exciting part of this whole area of when you've got something new. And I think this is going to be an ongoing process to define it. The other thing is, and I think, I'm not even sure myself all the time when one talks about this negotiation. Um, uh, Bob used to be my boss when he was president of the, Coalition of Service Industries, <laughs> uh, and I was his counsel. But um, I think a lot of the issues, Bob, that you mentioned are really market access issues as opposed to regulatory issues. And I think that's very important in this negotiation to keep in mind which are the market access part of the negotiations and which are the regulatory cooperation part of the negotiations. Maritime, cultural, those are market access type issues. Geographic indications are market access issues. The other issues, that, again, in regulatory cooperation to me, it breaks down into what are the best practices that the regulators should use in terms of making sure that as companies with transatlantic business activities, you know, uh, for example, they don't have to develop different types of pieces of information in a regulatory proceeding for the U.S. versus, versus uh, Europe, that the risk assessment factors are the same. Plus, then you have the question of what do you do about existing standards? I think some existing standards are gonna try to get to the convergence or mutual you know, recognition. I think what Dehut was talking about is a lot of this is, of course it's easier to work on reg standards that haven't been developed yet. 
E-mobility was a good example where the U.S. and you are, are making real progress on this. So, you know, I, I think this is still a, a work in progress, and that's exciting. It's an open book, and there's room for lots of op-eds out there. So I want to take one more question. I'm sorry I didn't leave a whole lot of time. Uh, to take a question right here, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do next. Thanks. Hi, is this working? Um, I'm Juliana von Rapid Bismarck with MLEX. Um, I have two questions, one to Frederick and one more broadly. Um, Frederick, when you're talking about extending liberalization um, on a plurilateral basis, which surely must be on the minds of the negotiators at the moment as they look at China and India and try to influence beyond their own um, negotiation, what areas, given that ACTA really wasn't a terribly good example, what areas do you think could be of interest for extend, extending on a plurilateral basis. And then um, I just wanted to follow up on the first question on services. Um, I might be a little bit out of date, but at one point I think the US um, um, officials involved in the preliminary negotiations um, were quite keen to let the WTO take the lead on the services side, right, and to look at what progress is being made by the WTO on the agreement on services. Given the declining power of the WTO, which I think you probably all agree on. Is that a realistic way to go? Thank you. Good questions. Do you uh, want to give it a shot, Frederick? Yeah, sure, thanks. Um, I mean, f first of all, I think there are many different ways to externalize um, different sort of advancements that you can make in an EU-US trade agreement. I mean, plurilateral is going to be one of, one of the formats for doing it, but you can also do it in, in your own uh, in the individual bilateral and regional approaches that, that Europe and the United States have. And possibly you can think about smaller type of multilateral achievements or multilateral ideas for, for the future where, where there might be some, uh, some, some scope for, uh, for success as well. Um, the areas here, um, I mean, I think we can list quite, quite a number of areas. I mean, everything from state-owned enterprises, uh, competitive neutrality disciplines on state-owned enterprises. We can go into subsidies. Um, uh, we can go into also areas of intellectual property. Um, you mentioned ACTA as, as a bad example. I think what, I mean, what ACTA is a bad example of is that it no longer works to try to band together all sorts of intellectual property rights and think that you know, people really are going to be, you know, accept the idea or at least that MEPs and NGOs are going to accept the ideas that you can regulate them all in one sweep, in one particular approach. So if you look to Europe, for instance, I mean, the entire opposition to ACT, I would say, came from those from, that were anti-copyrights. It hadn't, at least, um, well, to put it like this, it didn't have much to do with patents or with, the sort of intellectual property rights that represents big economic assets or bigger economic values. Uh, it tended to be about uh, smaller economic values, but things that may create risks or uncertainties, perhaps even problems for individuals. Um, now we are at the position, coming back to the IPR issue, where you, at least Europe tends to be of the view that either you go for doing all sorts of intellectual property rights in a, in, together with the United States, including geographical indicators, or you do nothing. Um, which is a position I think is is intellectually incoherent, and I don't think it's going. It's it's not very, um, it's not very strategic either, because I think we are at the point where both 
EU and United States needs to find a way to distinguish the IPR agenda, take different elements and put them together and try to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Because the old notion that we, you know, we pack them together and, and think you can make an overall political and economic argument to favor them, that's, that does not hold anymore. Um, but I mean, these are a couple of areas where I think you can, you can achieve uh, disciplines, um, um, which in a larger context, you can also make attractive for other countries in the world. Um, so, somebody want to address the uh, services question? Uh, <laughs> is there a conflict here with what the high-level working group is asking for or suggesting and what the WTO is? Yeah, I, I, I didn't quite understand the question, but basically the U.S. has services negotiations going on in the TPP. It has services negotiations that will be part of the U.S.-EU and they're negotiating the, the plurilateral international services agreement. So I think that this is a classic example of seeking uh, to uh, uh, open services markets through every avenue. Uh, and uh, USTR, uh, as I said, is, is outstanding as a negotiator, and uh, they've long demonstrated they can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I don't think there's a conflict. Thank you. I apologize. We've run out of time. There are a lot of hands still raised out there. Stay with us for lunch, which what? is going to be in the Winter Garden, and the panel will be here to, to answer your questions, and we can have a conversation. Thank you for coming, and let's uh, thank the panel, please. Thank you.